And I wondered if you could give us your views on what the majors have done well while you've been looking on and not participating and what they've done badly. And please feel free to talk generically or else play the man, not the ball. What the majors have done, pretty traumatic few years, is address their fundamental sort of cost base. And I think all of them have done fantastic work in, in really cutting out significant costs of the operational base and making themselves more resilient as a result of doing that. And I've seen some organisations which have really been in pretty precarious positions and, and you would have thought at points in time that they had nowhere to go. Essentially, because of this very focused thing on getting the operations done and, and essentially concentrating on, on the stuff that you can actually do as opposed to having big ambitions, but nevertheless concentrating on seeing small, seeing incrementally every day how they can improve things, have actually come through and set themselves in a very, very credible position. The Anglo-American, I think, is a great example of that. That a few years ago, Anglo-American was in a really bad shape and in a really bad position. Whereas today, I think, is an entirely different position. And this strong concentration that the team there, there by Mark has had, I think has, has paid enormous dividends, to use them as just one example. So I think that has been a very, very good exercise of focused management by the industry. And as a result of that, and because of their, their retardation of the investment programs, and we'll come, come back to that now, they've been able to return significant amounts of cash in the form of dividends and capital returns to shareholders. And therefore, they've, they've sort of satisfied the needs of the investment community. But therein lies, I think, their biggest challenge going forward, that they have not, and boards of directors and management teams generally have not focused on this very simple proposition that mining companies, every single day they take something out of the ground, that value disappears forever. And unless you do something to replace that value, you are going to end up withering and dying. And we have many good examples in South Africa of grand and great mining companies. Grand Mines, for instance, for many years ago, those who are old enough will remember, being a great example. It was once the biggest mining company in the world. That doesn't exist because of a lack of investment in rebuilding and recreating value. And some value creation can come about by lowering your cost base so more grey becomes payable or more all becomes payable in the ground. But most of it comes from ongoing investments and increasing your optionality. So the ability to create value depends on the options that you have within your portfolio and to recognise when those options should be tackled. And I fear that this very focused approach on returning cash to shareholders in the form of dividends and capital returns has not in fact taken into account the need to sufficiently reinvest. And so they have not created new optionality. And for most mining companies, that means that unless they do something, their NPV going forward is just simply going to show a declining trend. And ultimately, that will reflect itself in the share price because present value of the future cash flows ultimately will decline. And I think that's the challenge. And the challenge is there because for them to change that course of action, they need to convince investors that that's something that they should be doing. And I just think that the education, the comms, the, almost the propaganda in a, in a very positive sense, the mining executives have to engage with the investors on a continuous basis and being allowed to die away. And so there is quite a gulf now between the imperatives of mining companies to continue to create and generate value 
and the long-term investments that are required for that versus the expectations of the investor community. And I think there is a big challenge there and a big gulf that needs to be bridged. So I totally agree with you. There is a fear at the board level often now in the big groups of having been accused of excess capital spend in the past and this complete focus now on no capital spend. But there has also been the cutback when pairing costs on things like ESG, which is why we've seen some of the disasters that have resulted, not least in some of your old operations. So do you think part of the conversation with investors also has to be if you want us to do proper ESG, there is also a cost there and there is less uh, coming through in the dividend? The answer to that is yes. When you have the urgent need to cut costs, clearly the things that you cut generally are things which are not really good for you in the long term. I mean, in the old days, the easiest way of actually improving your C1 cash costs was to cut back on development because you don't actually see the negative aspects of cutting back on development until maybe a year or so later, but you can have an immediate impact on costs. If you only invest in environmental impact and safety and stuff like that, again, it comes back to bite you, you know, at some time in the future. So invariably, those things require investment. But, you know, I've generally found that improvements in productivity and output go hand in hand with investments in these areas. So I don't think that because you have the appropriate amount of energy and investment in things like ESG and ensuring that your maintenance regimes are right and your development is right actually is an increase in costs with no benefit. I actually think that it goes hand in hand with improvements in productivity and I think you find you get them back. So I don't actually think ultimately there's a trade-off. I think you need to make the case for why you do it, but I think you gain almost immediate benefit aside from the direct aspects of ensuring you know, you're not creating the risk by under-investing in those areas. But I think that the, the bigger challenge is that, that, as you say, mining companies have always been accused of excessive investment and destroying capital. And it is true that that is what's happened over many years. When you and I were starting out in this sector, you as an analyst and me as a young executive, we were right in the heart of the era where mining companies controlled and dominated by engineers and, and geologists were spending huge amounts of money, which was never, ever going to be returned. And there certainly wasn't ever going to be a return on that investment. And then we go through cycles and then sort of the accountants take over and they focus on return on investment and, and things get better. But as demand goes up and commodity prices go up and exceed long-term, long-run average prices, so people march into investing in capacity. And invariably, the people who get there at the back end of that investment ultimately spend the most amount of money, get the least return, and end up in a difficult situation. So that is all true. But it is very, very difficult for mining executives to calibrate those decisions with precision that investors seem to want. I mean, you are making decisions about investments which have a 20, 25-year life. And the smallest change over that period in a variable, whether it's your assumption on what your long-run price is going to be or ultimately what elements contained within your C1 cash costs are, changes your returns dramatically. And, so, and, and it's very difficult once you've actually engaged in that investment 
to actually step back and say, okay, well, I'll scale it down. And I'll either slow down the investment or alternatively, if I'm in operation, I'll withdraw operations and not send as much product to the marketplace. Yeah, that's just not the way things work. And so you, you are locked into an industry which is not able to calibrate with sufficient precision. So the nature of the investor who invests in the mining industry has to recognize and respect cyclicality and has to recognize and respect the front-end loaded nature of your, your capex. And they should be interrogating not only the market decision as to why the investment was made, but to interrogate the resilience of those investments and the resilience of the balance sheet which supports those investments. So I think they should be less concerned about we built something for some exogenous reason, the market falls away, so we have a period where we have low prices, lower than we thought we had, because cycles will change, and you'll have periods where you have much higher prices at some point in the future. What you have to test is, are you resilient enough as an organization to handle that investment and live with that investment through a period of unexpected low prices? And it's that question, that, that sense of resilience which the market doesn't test and management teams don't actually approach that well. And that's the area which I think management teams need to educate investors about and investors need to interrogate management teams on their capacity to, to build in resilience. Then you, know, then you have to talk about if they are going to be building something, why has the industry so badly managed builds in, 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 in the last few years, why we had these massive overruns. And I suspect a lot of the reasons go to quite simple issues, that we start these projects too soon in the sort of the development cycle. In other words, we start them without completing the engineering. So we have, we have engineering completed, certainly, but there's not enough, the engineering is not sufficiently complete. So at the time we have completed the engineering, we have to gerrymand the projects and change them, and that adds enormous cost into them. And the other thing is that I don't think that the industry understands fully, once the project is started on the ground, how to actually manage the sequencing of projects on the ground. Once people are on the ground, that cost is there every single hour of the day that they're sitting there. And if you have one thing which steps out of sequence, so you can't productively deploy part of your construction force, then not only do you go over time, but you go massively over cost. And it's those two areas which I think we need to get right if we're going to successfully build things in a way where we don't end up with these massive overruns on time and, and on costs which can never be recovered.